Hi everyone, welcome back to the Lake Podcast. I'm your host, Karthik Nachipan. We've been on a mini break since May when we recorded our last episode. I'm really excited to be back with this episode and there's more coming up over the next few months on some really interesting books. So please look out for it. Today we're going to talk about a book that covers migration from South Asia to the Middle East. Migration is often considered endemic to South Asia. South Asians travel to distant and distinct parts of the world to better their lives and that of their own families. South Asia as a whole has been shaped and been shaping major migratory movements globally and across regions like the Middle East. Around a million or so migrants of Indian origin travel to work in oil projects in the Gulf, which still remains an attractive option and destination for low-skilled South Asian migrants. A recent ethnography by anthropologist Andrea Wright, Between Dreams and Ghosts, maps this trajectory from India to the Middle East, allowing readers to travel from sites in India to the Gulf, the oil fields and back home, capturing the individual migrants who make the journey, their lives and stories. The recruiting agencies who enable these journeys, the government bureaucrats, largely Indian, who advocate for and extol these migrations, and the firms who profit off these lives. As Wright shows, examining and describing such migrations from South Asia today involves unpacking them as part of a deeply socio-political and economic process tied to larger trends like imperialism, capitalism, and neoliberalism, all of which inflect and influence the current shape of South Asian migrations to the Gulf. Here is Andrea Wright on Between Dreams and Ghosts, Indian Migration and Middle Eastern Oil, published by Stanford University Press in November 2021. Hi, Andrea. Thank you so much um, for doing this. Um, I want to just begin by asking um, how you got interested in the topic of migration and Indian migration to the Gulf, and also how you decided to focus on the oil industry. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for um, inviting me. I'm really excited to be here. And my interest um, in Indian migration began um, when I was actually living in Lucknow studying Urdu and I um, had a, I was going to visit a friend in Beirut and I had a long layover in Dubai. And at the time, um, uh, like 2006, I really didn't know a lot about Dubai. And so I talked to my Urdu instructors and they're like, well, you should go to the mall because the mall's great. And so I went to the mall and or was, I got to the airport and I um, was getting in a taxi and I be, asked the taxi driver, you know, in English to take me to the mall. And um, he said he didn't understand my English. And I tried in Arabic and he told me he didn't understand Arabic. And so um, after a few tries, I asked in um, uh, Hindi and he was surprised that I understood Hindi. And we began to talk and um, we found out that he was from a, a village close to where I was living in um, India. And I, from that meeting and meeting um, some of the people some of his friends um, 
I became really interested in the large numbers of Indians who are um, work in the Gulf. And so that's what really um, propelled or um, illuminated to me how many um, people from South Asia and in India in particular are living and working in the United Arab Emirates. And, um, and the oil industry came about also in part because of um, conversations when I, um, a few years later when I returned to India to do um, a long stint of ethnographic research, I, um, I moved to Mumbai because I knew it was a place where there was many um, recruiting agents and I thought, well, I'll go and um, just, you know, introduce myself and they'll tell me about their work, but nobody wanted to talk to me. And so I kept, you know, showing up and everyone would slam their door. Like, you know, it's like, no, I don't want to talk to you. And um, in part, I think it's because recruiting agents sometimes um, are, uh, get a bad, like, have a bad reputation. There was some bad press going around. And so people weren't sure of my motives. And so I'd um, started volunteering with the um, Bahari Association and uh, met someone who then introduced me to a recruiting agent. And that recruiting agent specialized in the oil industry. And, or staffing projects in the oil industry in the Middle East. And from that encounter, I, um, the recruiting agent introduced me to other recruiting agents who also um, worked on staffing oil projects. And so my focus largely became this movement of um, uh, workers to staff the oil and gas projects in the Gulf. And um, historically, a lot of the earliest movements um, of Indians to work in the, uh, movements of labor um, to work in the Gulf by the British begin after um, oil is discovered in Iran in 1908 um, and continues um, using these colonial processes. So it, like the oil and gas industry has like a nice long history of um, moving workers. So it was a very generative place to study. That, that was actually gonna be my next question is, is, is how was the process of Indian migration to the Gulf historically understood generally? Um, and, and how did you begin to problematize and question these notions around Gulf migration? So, um, well, when I began my research, um, both government officials and recruiting agents and you know, people I speak to in India often thought it was quite um, natural uh, that there'd be lots of Indians working in the Gulf. And a lot of it was put into a, um, a conversation about like scarcity and surplus or um, mm. supply and demand in which, well, there's lots of um, labor in India, but not a lot of labor in the Gulf and lots of money in the Gulf, but not a lot of um, as many, as much money or as many money opportunities for um, well-paying jobs in India. And so of course people, Indians just wanna go and work in the Gulf. And so, um, and that, you know, of course looking for good paying jobs and needing manpower is an aspect of it, but actually when we look at the history of um, migration, what we see is that um, the British, what um, in the 1800s, the British colonial administration in India set up a system to regulate immigration that in many ways helped staff um, plantations after the um, slavery became um, illegal in the British Empire. And this was the system was supposed to protect um, individuals who are going as indentured workers, but also created a system that actually helped move lots and lots of people. And so in the early 1900s, as the British are trying to expand their um, footprint on oil projects in um, the Persian Gulf region, they, uh, they need lots of workers and they have, and they use the system that was developed to move indentured workers from India to other parts of the British empire to move workers to um, oil projects in the Persian Gulf. And this continues, um, 
uh, from much of the um, British um, presence, which the British don't, are, um, don't really formally leave the Gulf until 1971. And even after that, we continue to see um, oil projects uh, being staffed in that way. So it draws upon this long, like longer history um, that I find really fascinating how these like colonial capitalism and colonial labor mobilities continue into the present. Mm. You know, one thing I was talking about was when, when we, I mean, when most Indians hear about migration to the Gulf, they kind of focus on the South. So Kerala, right? And a lot of people who've been going back and forth from Kerala for centuries, um, uh, in, initially because of religious reasons. And there was a big Islamic kind of connection there. And there've been some recent historical work on that as well. I think there was a book called Monsoon Islam, which kind of, which, which talked about the religious and, and commercial connections between Yemen and, and parts of, of the Middle East to, to the South. And, but you are actually extending that to look at other parts of India as well that we don't really hear much about. Yeah, um, it's, it's really interesting. So um, there's a couple of reasons for that. One is um, practical. I um, know Hindi and Urdu, but I don't know any South Indian languages. So that yeah. in some ways informed who I could speak to. But um, actually, um, for workers who are going for unskilled or semi-skilled jobs, mm. most of them now come from Northern India. So Uttar Pradesh, yeah. um, Bihar and Jharkhand. Um, and uh, recruiting agents tell me that this is because as an area profits from um, the wealth of remittances, um, people want higher salaries in order to migrate. Mm. And so um, uh, recruiters or oil company, human resource managers, um, move to um, air places where people are willing to go for lower pay. And so this becomes like um, uh, rural areas in these states that have lower than average um, incomes, lower than the average Indian income. Um, the book's title is really um, arresting. It's, 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 it's great, right? I mean, Between Dreams and Ghosts, which, which captures the, and as you mentioned, the poetics of labor migration, right? So dreams and ghosts are terms that that you write um, that migrants use to describe their, their situations and also situate their migration. So what do you mean by that? What are they referring to by dreams and ghosts? Well, um, I, I think there's a, there's a few, many, many registers, I guess, but mm -hmm. um, in some ways it's very um, uh, straightforward. So uh, dreams could be, you know, dreaming of, um, mm -hmm. Often migrants would talk about like mod, um, making India modern or dreaming about buying, um, dreaming of flying in an airplane before they'd migrated or um, buying um, uh, the um, consumer fancy clothes that are seen on TV or, you know, have uh, being able to make some live in a city or, you know, like some dreams that migrants would often talk about and reasons that that would um, in, inspire them to migrate or being able to help their sisters or daughters get married or send their children to school. These are dreams that um, inform migration. And ghosts, so there are these um, ghosts on the other hand are often ways, I was surprised at how many ghost stories I was told um, as I spoke mm -hmm. with migrants. And um, often ghost stories um, revolved around ways of reminding workers about their obligations at home or their obligations to their family or obligations to one another. And, um, you know, in some ways act as a check on dreams, but they are, they're interesting in so far as dreams often refute, 
refer to the ways people imagine the future as opposed to ghosts are ways in which people are um, constructing the past. And so it not only situates their migration in the present, but helps them situate their migration um, within a longer trajectory of both their community, the Indian nation, um, or, or as small as their family. And so um, what I find fruitful in thinking about those poetics is that they don't necessarily always fall along what I would anticipate as a scholar they would mean, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and so I would say, oh, what, what does it mean to be modern? It might be buying gold for a dowry, which is not mm -hmm. what I would have necessarily anticipated um, someone saying. And so it, as an anthropologist, so let me think through um, some of the meanings, a way to like investigate or get into some of the meanings that workers told me their migration, mm -hmm. reasons they told me their migration was important to them. So the big, a, a big part of the book and the research is to, as you mentioned, underscore the everyday lives of migrants um, and what their families are experiencing uh, through an ethnographic lens. Um, so why explore migration through an ethnographic lens? Because um, you also have to travel from one place to another and back, right? Um, how, does, how does an ethnography add to us understanding migration better? That's a good question. Um, so I think that uh, migration allows us to disrupt some of the um, mm. assumptions that we make about um, uh, migration. So for example, ethnography allows us to like um, critically interrogate um, something that we talk about as like supply and demand to understand like the human costs, the human lives and human experiences of those um, models. But I think one of the things I find most hopeful about ethnography is it also shows that there's such a diversity of ways in which people live in the world and that there's so many different futures and ways in which people imagine the future, um, have hopes for the future and ways in which people can form communities that I think really provide us with a lot of insights about um, possibilities, um, possibilities for the future while simultaneously underscoring um, the connections that exist in the present between all of us as humans. And so um, I think for me, one of the great values of anthropology is this um, uh, ability to show both the possibilities, but also the similar, the differences and similarities between um, humans. And I think, um, yeah. Did, did you feel, I mean, while you were traveling between these different sites that, 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 you were able to immerse yourself enough to understand what was happening um, in one site at that particular time before moving? So, yes, I mean, I um, there's some sites I think, you know, I probably um, am much more familiar with it. I spent many years doing ethnographic research. So it wasn't like I just popped in and stayed in yeah. the village. I, and, this built upon um, years that I'd spent living in India, learning um, Hindi and Urdu and mm -hmm. um, relationships that I built, built then. Um, and so there were, um, so I spent um, a long time like working at a certain recruiting agency and I, I felt like at the beginning the process was completely confusing and by the end I feel, felt much clearer to me. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, so I think that it's that um, the time spent like mm -hmm. living with people in their everyday lives that really like helps um, expand the, my understandings. Although of course, you know, it's 
as everyone's understandings of structures are, it's uneven and incomplete and, you know, there's mm. um, gaps, but. Um, yeah. So the one thing I was fascinated by, and I was hoping you could talk more about that was, was, was how you make, made the decisions on which group to sort of track and follow and also where, as in the locations, because um, even the oil industry is quite vast and you sort of have to be very um, specific in terms of where you're going and how you're going to do the research, right? And, and, and also what the logic was behind these choices. And I also asked this because you write off the difficulties you experienced meeting workers, um, gaining access to oil companies, agents, and the laborers themselves. So th this must have been really a gargantuan task ethnographically to conduct, right, across these different sites. Um, yes, it was, um, it required a lot of effort. And I think that, you know, one of the joys mm. of a book is that you don't see all the uh, paths that I tried that, right. you know, ended up being, um, I was unable to follow, I guess, you know, you know, and had to backtrack. So um, the beauty of a book is it makes it seem seamless in a way yeah. that, <laughs> so <laughs> I, um, I think, and this is probably one of the values of ethnography and um, being in a um, particular location for so long is um, after I was able to work at a recruiting agency, a couple of recruiting agencies for a long period of time, I had met people who worked um, in the, who are based in the Middle East as like project managers at um, uh, oil project sites. And um, they, that helped facilitate my like that helped facilitate my entry into those sites, which I think would have been um, really um, challenging had I not had that, um, those connections that I met in India. So people, yeah. you know, be, I become familiar and almost boring in my um, everyday presence as opposed to, um, you know, someone whom people don't understand what I'm doing. And so that helped. Um, and it just, because I was following building upon these connections I made originally in a recruiting agency, some of the workers then were the same people that I met who'd been hired by the company. So they were, I met them in, um, or I met them, um, some people I met who were looking for jobs in India. When I went to the Gulf, I was still in contact with via, you know, social media or um, texting or whatever. And so um, I was able to connect with them in those ways. Um, and then some of this then became backtracking to go to their visit their families afterwards because I couldn't. Um, this is, I thought, one of the challenges was unless I embed myself in a place where there's a large number of people who are going to the Gulf, it's hard to know where, you know, who's going to migrate and what mm. impact. So some of it was, although the book is written more starting in a village and moving to the Gulf. Mm. One really interesting aspect of the book is that is that Indian migration to the Gulf is, is used to explain economic uh, systems or logics as well, right? So specifically capitalism and neoliberalism, which you describe as privatization and liberalization markets that affect labor patterns. Um, how did you think through this relationship between migration and neoliberalism specifically and how the latter inflected and influenced the former? Right, well, I think that, um... There's a there's a few ways it shows up in the book, um, and some of this um, relates to other work that's been done on like India's um, the liberalization of India's economy in the 80s and 90s, and how this then um, uh, impacts how India presents itself, which um, Carr talks about in her work. But the um, 
and then part of this then is migrants become thought of as like being brand ambassadors of India or like um, their trade, like labor is a commodity, but it's a commodity that is um, a human who, you know, like actually like acts differently than a mango, right? You know, like, you know, well, has the potential to do all sorts of things. So like um, recruiting agents and government officials would talk about, um, you know, helping improve India's brand by training migrants to make them better. But this training was not necessarily being paid for by the government, not a, or, nor was it being paid for by companies, but migrants were expected to um, discipline themselves or to become entrepreneurial in their desire to improve themselves, to find jobs and things. And a lot of these logics around um, entrepreneurship and brand um, are closely connected to the um, changes that we see with like uh, neoliberal um, economic actions like privatization. So moving it away from like the government being responsible for um, training to individuals having to seek out their own training. The other sort of big thing I wanted to ask you was about the colonial legacies that, that also inform and shape these migratory patterns and migrant lives. And, 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 and this is something that you see in the Middle East, but also in, in Southeast Asia. Uh, particularly through British imperialism, where migrant where migrant populations, I think to this day remain precarious and have been so for a long time. Um, were you able to find any differences from the colonial capitalism and that that was prevalent before and the neoliberal capitalism that you're documenting in this book? I mean, I think there are some. I think one would have to, in one of the tensions maybe that emerges is this idea that. Um, uh, so with colonial capitalism and colonial labor mobilities, um, the, the logic behind regulating indenture is to protect workers. And yeah. so this, you know, there's this question of like, how do we best protect um, uh, workers and make sure that they're not going to be slaves? So there's an oversight of emigration. And even today, mm -hmm. an Indian man who hasn't passed 10th class needs permission from the Indian government to migrate. And um, and so there's this logic of like colonialism and protection, you know, which is, you know, paternalism that I think we see deeply embedded in a lot of colonial um, yeah. projects. Of course, not, um, not benevolent paternalism, but there's a paternalism there. Um, you know, it's uh, mm. highly problematic. And, but that tension that become, that runs in tension with this ideal of everyone being a self-made entrepreneur who's best maximizing their potential and capacities, which is what under neoliberalism often migrants are thought of. And so um, one of the things I try to explain in the book is how um, government officials who regulate immigration in India um, understand their job both as protecting migrants or a potential Indian migrants so that they don't end up um, in at bad jobs in the Gulf or not real jobs or being abused because the labor laws are not as strict as um, in the United States, for example. Um, and in contrast, how they uh, are simultaneously understanding migrants to be entrepreneurs who are trying to like improve their um, mm. quality of life. And, you know, and so I think that's one of the big differences is this uh, logic of how these capitalisms in the state interact, mm. I think. Um, so I, I was really fascinated by the role of the Indian state and it's and what it does in your in, in your story and, and also how the Indian state benefits overall, right? And, and there's an interesting quote in chapter two, uh, which, which, you, which you write from the secretary of the Ministry of Overseas Indian Affairs. And he says, and I quote here, 
um, what is globalization? It is just another word for migration, end quote. Uh, and, and he almost regarded the duty of the state, as you mentioned, to promote and regulate migration to service the nation, right? The Indian nation and the Indian state. Um, and what's interesting here is that, that migration manifests through neoliberal policies, which also implicates the state that actively intervenes to um, generate some gains for itself through this process of capital accumulation, right? Yeah, no, it's fascinating. So this, and this idea of privatization is actually in many ways being um, uh, supported by the government. So it's not a, yeah. you know, this complete laissez-faire, hands-off, you know, free market, but rather the state actually is, um, participates in, in this, um, I think, um, thinking about, it's an excellent question, because it's it's really interesting how the state actually in many ways is acting like, um, is wearing a lot of different hats, you, you know, and um, by both like promoting migration and uh, regulate, like trying to promote India's brand. So it's like an advertiser and a, you know, a protector and a, um, but simultaneously it seems like seamless in its role of being like the government. So it's a, um, yeah, no, it's a, I like the messiness of it though. Cause I think it's one of the yeah. ways we can see how like the state is like not a, um, is like actively being constructed by participants. So, yeah. um, and also increasingly, I mean, at least in the last few years, it's it's adopted the role of a crisis manager, right? Mm -hmm. Whenever whenever some of these migrant communities um, are going through hardship, whether that's because of their employers or because of something that they've done, you 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 see officials of the Indian state um, engaging through social media or through other platforms or avenues to help them or to be of some assistance to, mm -hmm. to these migrant workers. Not, I mean, this is not just in the Middle East, but also in other parts of the world. So it's, it's beyond just the regulation. It's, it's becoming more multifaceted than what it's been before, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. No, it's, it's really interesting. But in some ways also they um, utilize private, uh, like Indian citizens. So in the Gulf, um, mm. Uh, when I was in the um, United Arab Emirates, there was a time where I was spending time in an abandoned camp. That was um, mm. a camp that the, um, this was after the uh, global recession in 2008, nine, and uh, the owner of the company had fled. And so these, there was a group of workers who were abandoned and um, didn't have, they hadn't been paid for the work that they'd done. They lived in a building with like no electricity and no water and were dependent upon migrants in nearby buildings to help supply um, these things. And there was a, um, a group that was formed largely through the actions of um, a, a South Asian woman who was living in the United Arab Emirates to like provide um, food. And then eventually they fundraised to send um, workers home. And what we see today is that there's a, um, some of those organizations have a more active role, like formal role between the governments is like um, providing these services. So there's a increased, um, I guess maybe a contracting or subcontracting of these um, uh, ways that the Indian government operates is through, you know, working with private citizen groups. Does these new activities also add to the brand that the Indian government is so keen to protect and defend globally? which you also document in the book. Yeah, so 
I mean, I would think so, because I, um, I mean, it makes visible, you know, um, elite and uh, wealthy migrants, but also it um, reduces the numbers of um, migrants who are abandoned, is what they would call them in the Gulf. Um, so in those ways, it, it definitely does. And, you know, I, I mean, one of the uh, quotes that I remember best is this idea that the, um, you know, good representatives of India's brand are doctors living in the United States yeah. and, you know, like, yeah. and so migrants were, you know, and they didn't want to send um, uneducated, they were worried that uneducated Indians could be um, abused or abandoned by their employer and end up, um, you know, on the streets and that would look bad for India was the concern. And so this protection was, of course, then very closely connected to a branding image, I guess. So. Hmm. Um, how effective do you think the branding has been so far? Um, well, you know, it's interesting because, um, and I write this a little bit in the book, but it seems like there's, I mean, I think it's been in some ways very effective when we think about the um, relocation of many companies to India and, you know, like, especially, you know, um, uh, in the enormous skill sets and potential that India has, there's also on the somewhat differently. I'm not sure that the calculation oil company human resources managers are making is necessarily about brand and has a lot more to do with maybe cost and worker management. So you want, um, they want workers who will take as little money as possible and preferably not too many workers from the same place because they're more likely to strike or form, try to, you know, organize together. And so there's the, you know, there's a lot of different factors that play into how, um, companies decide to hire workers and what, where, from where they hire workers. Uh, there, there's a lot in this book. I mean, I mean, I can just sort of go on and on, but besides neoliberalism, you also explore kinship and, and, and how um, transnational labor patterns um, are formed and sustained uh, through gold specifically, which is used for uh, dowries, right? That, that, that allows migrants to maintain kinship and relations um, within families uh, over time. Um, how did you even begin to think through this uh, gold issue uh, as, as a form of kinship that, that, that holds together these families across, across continents? So um, this first became apparent to me when I was um, uh, shopping with a uh, group of men who've migrated, who are, mm -hmm. Um, living in the United Arab Emirates, um, who are from India. And um, one of them began to tell me about how he was saving money because he needed to buy gold for his sister's dowry. And then um, later that week, we we went and went to a gold store and bought gold. And I was, at the time, I was kind of surprised because his, his sister was marrying a, um, someone from Australia. And I had um, assumed based on um, you know, some writings that maybe in the illegality, that dowry is technically illegal, that mm. people, you know, that dowry would be less popular. But actually what I realized when I, as I talked to more and more people is that um, uh, it was a huge motivating factor was buying gold for sisters or daughters dowries and the gold bought in Dubai or the Gulf or Dubai in particular, but the Gulf in general was thought to be more pure than the gold in India, which is not mm. necessarily, um, I, I don't know if that's true or not, but that was the story. That was what I was told. And um, 
and there's actually this a really long history of you know gold being traded be, between Dubai and Mumbai, and you know it's um, that predates India's independence. And so, um, what I found really interesting was that you know by purchasing gold for dowries, um, uh, people were able to form relationships with their sisters. Um, men were able to show that they were good sons and good brothers by buying this gold and um, helping their sisters or daughters marry. Um, it helped um, in some ways for people to um, arrange better marriages for their um, daughters or sisters. And it also um, uh, it sometimes helps maintain connections between daughters and I mean, between sisters and brothers after marriage through these mm. exchanges of gold. I think it facilitated a closeness. So in some ways gold then kind of um, helps form relationships in the same way we think of like blood forming relationships or, mm. you know, these organic substances. And so, um, and it goes back to um, one of those questions you began with, which was about like how workers understand and situate their migration. And, the, mm. and one of the ways they do that is by um, situating it within the context of their families and how they're mm. um, fulfilling their obligations to their families through mm. helping siblings. Mm. Um, so you, you were in touch with these workers, oil workers during the pandemic when um, when I guess they probably experienced more hardship than the rest of us, right? Mm -hmm. um, isolation, fears of job loss, um, like paralyzing uncertainty with, with no real agency to determine their fates. Um, and, and even going back to India was not really an ideal option given how the pandemic was unfolding there. Mm -hmm. um, I'm wondering, have you had a, maybe had, a set, had some time to think about what the futures of these migrations will look like to the Gulf, whether it's whether it will be uh, with connections to neoliberalism, what the Indian state does, uh, and even whether migrants themselves will be more willing to travel to the Gulf um, now um, in a post-COVID world. Right. So I've thought about it a little bit, and I have you know some yeah. guesses, but I'm not sure. Um, but um, one thing I wonder is if um, the pandemic exacerbates or increases global wealth inequalities, it's possible mm -hmm. that um, there may be greater motivations to migrate. In, in particular, um, debt um, or paying off one's family's debts is a reason in addition to like, you mm -hmm. know, helping a sister marry that people migrate. And it is my, from my understanding, a lot of people um, took on extra debt during the pandemic because, um, even families who just were dependent upon um, a family member working in um, a city who live in a on a farm but had a family member working in a city who was sending in some extra money lost mm -hmm. that money often and so there was a period of time in which debt increased and so I wonder if that will also um, increase migration or um, the desire for people to migrate. Um, yeah. I also wonder because of the um, ways in which restrictions have been constructed um, following the pan because of the pandemic, or you know, where um, it's restricted access to certain places. And so, I wonder if that will make it harder to do research in like um, migrant mm -hmm. camps, or you know, to access certain um, um, spaces because of like you know, under the guise of um, uh, you know, not you know, maintaining you know disease-free spaces, you know, like do you then restrict mm -hmm. access or restrict flows even further? Um, and how much then does it um, 
you know, like I think you said it was, you know, not desirable to go back to India because, you know, their job situation was bad or because the pandemic situation was bad, but also it was impossible for a while to go back to India because they weren't taking flights from Dubai. And then when they did, they would take, um, you had to sit in quarantine that, you know, that one had to pay for. And so there was, you know, it really, I think, um, made travel increasingly um, formalized. So it, you know, mm -hmm. makes it more challenging to negotiate for um, uh, the poorest, you know, individuals. And also how it affected the role of the intermediaries, right, who are really a crucial part of this, this migration when such a big crisis erupts. Um, how do they evolve and move on um, as being a cog in this, in this broader system, which enables people to move from one place to another, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. No, and it's, I think it's really challenging too, because they're often, um, mm -hmm. you know, their incomes vary widely. So when nobody's hiring yeah. more migrants, you know, they have more companies go out of business in this, um, or, or have fewer, have to downsize and, you know, it, mm. it um, so I think it also impacted that. So recruiting agents in those ways. Mm. Um, what was the hardest part of writing the book? I mean, probably the hardest part was like, you know, trying to, I think trying to synthesize these multiple sites and actors, you know, into a, um, in, in a way that was um, reflected the genuine respect and affection I have for most of my interlocutors while also, um, you know, critically analyzing the systems in which we're all operating. And um, so I think, but I think that um, trying to, show why process, you know, is it like, I, I really tried to emphasize the role of process and circulation within the book um, as a thing that's not fixed, but rather, but rather um, helps form communities. And I think that that um, was probably trying to make that make sense to a reader was um, challenging for me, but hopefully it worked. And, and, and finally, what are you working on now? So I'm in, the, I'm finishing up a book um, called Producing Labor Hierarchies. Um, and it's about uh, uh, strikes at oil projects in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s in the Gulf, mostly by Indian workers, and how that shaped um, Middle Eastern oil production overall and global, um, uh, I guess, global capitalism and state formation in the region and things like that. So I was thinking about the role of citizenship and rights and nationality in the oil industry. Um, Andrea, thank you so much. Thank you. It was this was really fun. Thanks. And that was Andrea Wright, the author of Between Dreams and Ghosts: Indian Migration and Middle Eastern Oil. I'm Karthik Nachipan and you've been listening to The Lake Podcast.